Hello and welcome to Interdisciplinary Season 8. We're calling the Season of the Switch. And if you don't know why that is, you'll know in a minute. Um, or you can just go back to the beginning of this season and start there because it's off the hook. Um, as usual, we're here uh, saying the quiet parts loud and talking about the things that people don't want to talk about but that need to be talked about. And uh, yeah, um, you'll find out in a minute just how crazy it's going to get. And we are very happy this season to be sponsored by ABMP, who has stepped up and sponsoring, sponsored the whole season of this whole season of interdisciplinary. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Healwell. Membership with ABMP offers comprehensive liability insurance along with meaningful resources and support that makes a difference in your career, including free CE in the ABMP Education Center, quick reference apps like 5-Minute Muscles and Pocket Pathology, Pocket Suite Scheduling and Booking Software, and the Inspirational Massage and Bodywork Magazine. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com so thank you abmp man i want five minute muscles i spent like an hour trying to get muscles this morning and it did it did not work so (laughs) (laughs) um so are you guys ready for the pun uh yeah sure uh-huh. And we, we may have to drop into the epistemological wormhole as we debate whether or not this qualifies as a pun. However, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. Oh, yes. Our chef used to be a tailor. Oh, crap. <laughs> okay. No, I think okay. that's a pun. Right? That's a pun. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a joke, but it's definitely a pun. The borderline pun. Right? Because fly, yeah. you know, the whole, yeah. There's so, wordplay. Yeah. I'll take it. There's wordplay. Right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, like the fly was open, sort of. You boom. There, there it we is. Go. Okay. See, there it that's is. what I love about puns. It's like there's the hot, and then there's like, oh man. There's like the double whammy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that counts. Well, that voice that you hear that you have not heard yet on this podcast. <laughs> Taylor, like tail. <laughs> tail of the fly. Oh boy, here Never we mind. go. <laughs> See, there's, there's, there's multiple iterations of so many e- so many of punmanship. Punmanship. So yes. So I'll be quiet now. <laughs> but only for a second. Huh. Um so this is our guest, today's guest, Mr. Harry Pickens, whose name you may recognize as the uh creator, composer, performer of our super famous theme music for this podcast um and so many things y'all i'm really excited that we can have this conversation today so harry would you like to introduce yourself to the peoples well first of all i am bonkers stepfather (laughs) or father or (laughs) surrogate father or whatever like the 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 supportive presence of the cat. <laughs> I am also Rebecca's fiance, and the time is coming closer and closer. Ah, to yes, to to just confirm my delight of, with my beloved. And I'm a contemplative performance artist, a musician, and a teacher, and a writer, and a meditation guide. And I help people. I help people connect with their 
true nature as love and bring that love into all aspects of their life. Um, I train therapists and counselors and coaches in trauma reduction techniques, and I generally try to get in as much good trouble as possible. So that's who I am. Wonderful. But Bonker's stepdad is probably my most important role. Yeah. Well, given that as we record, she is sitting on my lap, I think that's, yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I I mean, there's so many things I think that we wanted to talk to you about and and ask about that have grown out of um, our conversations that we've been having on the podcast, the first three episodes, um, but also just life in general. Um, But given that this season is about code switching, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about... um, how you have experienced this in terms of navigating your own care. And also, um, since you were the primary caregiver for your mother for many years, um, how you navigated that in caring for her. Um, So let me start by saying that, you know, if you can't see me, I'm I am, I live in a brown body. I'm of African and Native American descent. I'm six foot nine. And I have been, as are most people in our culture, um, on the receiving end of countless stereotypes and projections of various kinds. To talk about medical code switching, I mean, Rebecca, you and I were talking the other day about code switching is like this ubiquitous phenomenon. It's not only about race, it's not only about gender, it's not only about sexuality, it's about, I mean, I code switch when I talk to therapists as opposed to talking to musicians, as opposed to talking to the person, you know, at the grocery store, right? I code switch when I'm talking to people who are 20 or 30 years younger than me, as opposed to people who are my age, whatever. So like for me, code switching, uh, the meta perspective of code switching is any shift in language, behavior, interaction that is appropriate for a certain genre or element of interaction, right? But from the medical standpoint, I grew up in South Georgia in the 60s and 70s and just in the heart of the deep South. And I experienced observing that, um, a lot of racial issues and prejudices and so forth. And these were very prominent within my family of origins. So for example, my mother wanted to have children and she tried to have children for many years and her doctor said, you can't have kids, I'm sorry. And later she found a friend of hers referred her to a doctor who'd helped her have a baby, who helped her become fertile. And she found out that their previous doctor discouraged all black women from having children because that was part of the gig, you know. My, my mother's sister, Mildred, died at age 23 of a botched appendectomy because she was, there was only one surgeon in that town in Georgia at the time, it was like 1942, 1943, who would operate on black folks. And he also happened to be alcoholic. So I don't know if he was drinking or whatever, but anyhow, she died a week after that operation at age 23. And he committed suicide about six months later. You know, So my family also navigating my mother's care, who you know I took care of for eight years, 
there were interactions with doctors where I had to come in with my Google file of medical information about side effects so that I could have a conversation about her, what, what do you call it when, when you, you talk about how the medicines work with one another and don't work like with the one interactions? another? interactions? Yeah, yeah, the interactions, the contraindications, right? I had to become an expert in those contraindications, but I also had to navigate the fact that when I, and fortunately her primary care physician was awesome and was really, was really open to us navigating these things, but some of the specialists who the moment they saw me walk in the room, they had a series of perceptions about me. So I learned how to be gently assertive, you know, and appropriately, um, appropriately persistent in the face of skepticism, medical gaslighting, et cetera. So I've just learned to navigate the world of healthcare the same way I've learned to navigate like the corporate world or any other corporate world where people who look like me are stereotyped. Well, and I keep hearing you say this word, and I think that this is this is really like the the bedrock of code switching, appropriate. And yeah. like what a what a loaded bullshit word. Like, yeah. you know, because who gets to decide what's appropriate? Not the person who's code switching, right? No, no, and no, not <laughs> at all. No, of course not. Of course not. But I mean, you know, that's that's the whole nature of a society. I read a great article in Medium the other day. I don't know if you know Umer Haig. He's one of my favorite writers. Uh, well, he's he he's characterized as a doom and gloomer, but I see him as a like hyper-realistic, you know, caller to account of what's going on. Whenever you have, a, he's talking about how American culture, one of the pathologies of American culture, it's based on domination. You know, one group lording it over another group, right? And whenever you have a culture like that, of course you don't take care of each other. Of course you get this hyper-competitive, hyper-capitalist kind of way of being, and you get a way of interacting with other people that's always about domination. It's never about equality, it's never about community. And I think, I think what you said, Cal, the appropriate, the issue of code switching is always about domination. Yeah. It's always about whoever's being dominated, finding a way to psychologically find a way through that domination so they get their needs met. Yeah, and how much of you do you lose along the way? And how do you, you know, how automatic does it become? I think that's one of the things that we've been exploring is the, um, you know, I, I feel like, you think about these things a lot and and are a very thoughtful person in general. And I remember Rebecca sharing something with me recently where you um, had gone from Louisville, you were in Chicago and that walking in Chicago, I wonder if you could just, if you remember having that conversation and kind of, if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've lived in Louisville for 20 plus years and there are things that I love about the community and there are things that are um, difficult. And one of the things that's more difficult is, of course, like Louisville is a blue island in a red state, you know, and this, this entire ascendancy of whether it's white nationalism, whether it's proto-fascism, whether whatever, where, you know, Louisville's, Louisville's also the home of what, where Breonna Taylor, you know, was, was killed. And I'm from Brunswick, Georgia, where Armand Arbery was killed. So, I mean, I have like, I, I have skin in all of those games, literally, right? 
And so what I was noticing is just walking in this particular neighborhood um, in the suburbs, I felt a releasing of a bracing that has become so instinctual as to become almost unconscious, you know? And I see the bracing, you know, the bracing happened. I remember driving down the street. Uh, this was a few months ago. And I don't know if you were with me, Rebecca, or not, but I was behind this truck and the truck had Trump 2024. And it had, it had a bunch of bumper stickers, you know, and some things that were quite, quite acerbic and cruel. And I remember thinking, wow, <clears throat> here I am. You know, so there's, there's a constant, the same thing happens when I go, go to the South or other places. There is a constant awareness. And Cal, I know you've experienced this in different ways, you know, but there's a constant awareness of hypervigilance. You know, can I let my guard down? No, I can't. I need to pay attention. I need to scan. I need to whatever. And so a lot of us live with that wherever we go. You know, but that I, I noticed that. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, tell me if, if I may be remembering incorrectly. So um, clarify if, I, if I'm getting this wrong. But I remember thinking, you know, Rebecca saying that your experience in, in Louisville is almost like you're sort of afraid on some level, you know, I mean, you can call it, we call it hypervigilance. We call it like, you're aware of the need to be hyper appropriate. And that- Absolutely, um, absolutely. And when, when Rebecca said that, I thought, Harry is a giant black man. I can't imagine being afraid. And I was like, I can't believe wow. that I thought that. And I, and I realized that like, I don't, we are all afraid of each other. You know, like there is this real base, like inability to recognize the fear that we're all carrying of each yes, other. Yes, yes. And I say things about that. Oh God, yes. I mean, I remember it was a couple of years ago, was it, that the um, two people were killed point blank at Kroger's in Louisville, you know, and then we had the Buffalo shooting recently and all that. And I remember the week Buffalo happened, I think we were here in in Evanston yeah, we and walking into the supermarket, walking into a supermarket became a transformed experience. And I'm very fortunate because I've been working on myself for a long time. And I, I, I have tools to help people release trauma in real time, right? So I could work with that and not take that into my body where it lives in my body and stays in my body and turns into disease 30 years later, right? But the same point, I mean, the first time we went in the supermarket, the entire time I'm in the supermarket, I'm just imagining, and not only for me, obviously, but definitely for me, but I'm just imagining, holy shit, can happen at any moment, you know? And the, the realization that, and the Buffalo shooter certainly emphasizes this, but that's not unique, the realization that to live in a brown body or to live in other kinds of bodies which aren't part of the dominating culture, right? Um, is to, in the United States of America in 2022, to be possibly hunted, to be considered somebody's prey, you know? It's like I was reading an article the other day about incels, you know, these in, involuntary celibates, right? And these, these men who have this 
twisted idea that they are owed sex by attractive women just by the, the mere fact of their being alive, right? And you take that and twist it and you combine that with isolation and Googling, spending all your time on the internet on video games and porn or whatever, and then having easy access to weapons, it's just like this cauldron of pathology that can be released in any instant, you know? So yeah, I think we're all afraid. And with our, our degree of fear, I think, depends on the amount of unconscious privilege we have and the number of intersectionalities we might run into, you know, because it's one thing to be, say, Black. It's another thing to be Black and gay. It's another thing to be Black and gay and old or whatever, you know, or young or, or yeah. with, 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 a, with a large body or a small body or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like we have a unique opportunity having you with us today because you have so much experience in body-centered practices and, and, and understanding the, you know, we were talking yesterday, gosh, I can't remember. We're having so many conversations around this intimacy and healthcare symposium and just sort of like how upset people are about this whole topic. And we were Mm. talking about, um, the, the erection situation in the massage practice right and that, yeah, yeah, that's right <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be my rapper name when i when i break out um, uh, true confession i've had them not i mean not just have a head erection but in <laughs> like 20 years ago in a massage circumstance i've had that happen well, and so this is what, you know, we didn't, we didn't go all the way down this road yesterday, but we were talking about how, uh, and I, I think this is going to come around to code switching. So just stay with me. Um, um, that, so a man is on the table, has a pleasurable experience in the massage, the autonomic nervous system yeah, engages the penis, they have an erection and most massage therapists don't have enough understanding of the nervous system to understand that this is not necessarily this person harassing you or suggesting sexual intent or anything like that. And, but what we didn't talk about is that broadly people don't know how their bodies work. And when dudes have an erection for the first time, chances are decent. They got crappy education about what that's all about. And so even the person on the table doesn't know that this isn't a sexual thing. And what do we do with not knowing what's happening inside our bodies and knowing that the sustainable solutions to these problems we're struggling with live inside our bodies? <laughs> um, how, do we, how do we deal with that? Knowing that we're running full speed from our bodies. That's a really good point. I mean, the whole erection phenomenon also depending on the context, may have nothing whatsoever to do with the massage or the person. Right. You know, and depending on how it's responded to, that can either make the situation much worse or diffuse it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when our bodies I think we don't have language around what happens in our bodies. And even when you were talking about feeling a releasing, like, I don't know that a lot of people would have the vocabulary to talk about the way that like, I know when I drive 20 miles from my little um, blueberry in the middle of a red state, 
I, I need to pee before I leave the house. Cause I don't want to use a public restroom 20 miles from here. Like it's just not worth it. My body doesn't want to go through yeah. the, all the stuff you have to do to gird yourself, to go into a public restroom. And like, you just, people are going to make comments. People are going to stare. Like, I just don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. And, but I feel that in my body, I'm aware of, of like my stories about it, but I wonder how do we move our, our awareness of code switching to somatic awareness? And would there be benefit in that? What do you mean when you say move our awareness of code switching to somatic awareness? Could you be more specific? Well, I quite understand. I feel like if we were aware of how tiring it is, we would be less tolerant of it. But it's so automatic that we don't we don't even notice the toll that it takes on us. Like I'm imagining you going into one of those specialty providers who I'm assuming for the most part were white. And like the and may and male. The the sort of like <laughs> it's like when some songs are written in this way where you feel like you want to belt it out, but it's not quite yet, right? Like you gotta wait like two more beats before you can really hit that spot. And yeah. I feel like you spend that whole office visit in that place of not quite being able to belt it out. And you were talking about being quote, appropriately persistent. Like you can't be the angry black man, right? Oh, absolutely and, not. And, nope. the, and the line nope. is, is real close. So how, how, do we, how do we get people to notice how hard it is to code switch and how many resources we're wasting? I think the way we get people to notice how hard it is to code switch is by having conversations like this that bring it into the light. That's what I think. Because, I mean, and I'm not, I, I, we, we could, I could go off on a tear about medical gaslighting, you know, for the next 37 hours, because I, I spent my 40s, I'm 62 now, I spent 10 years in the throes of chronic illness, which were a combination of uh, being living in a house that had black mold, traumatic brain injury and um, HPA axis dysfunction, you know, general. And I was exhausted. I had aphasia. I lost a lot of cognitive capacity, whatever. I went to 17 doctors over a, a period of three or four years, 16 of whom told me I couldn't get better. Uh, I went to a, neuro, a, a neurologist and they did an MRI or whatever. And he said, yeah, there's something happening in your brain, but we really don't know what it is. And I can give you a prescription for Prozac. You know, and I had the experience multiple times of this kind of gaslighting. Oh, that's not real, or it's in your head, or I can't really help you, or there's nothing wrong with you, or whatever. And I would go in sometimes with a stack of papers, which were printed off of research and information about complementary therapies, you know, and also this was again, 20 plus years ago, and functional medicine was in its infancy. Functional medicine almost didn't exist in where I lived, you know? And so there was, there was, a, there, there was a significant amount of psychological, psycho-emotional bracing that had to happen to get ready to go to see another freaking doctor who very well might, might hear me or they might not. And I mean, I think the big, the biggest lesson I learned about that, which I applied when I took care of my mom is, okay, ultimately I'm responsible for my own health and I need to build a team around me that's grounded in information and wisdom. 
And I can't look to any outside expert as the ultimate expert on my own body. That was the lesson. But you're right, it absolutely takes a toll. You know, and I, I think the more we, and it's, it's, it's so, I know that from being inside this body and this particular, this, this skin color and everything. And I remember I had atrial fibrillation when I was 36, I spent a weekend in the hospital. And I will never forget the doctor that was apparently working, it was a fairly young guy, who when I tried to ask him questions before he gave me a drug of any kind, he was completely dismissive of those questions and gave me a drug, beta pace. I don't know if you know much about it, but that drug actually introduced another heart rhythm that could have been fatal. So I go into the hospital to have this, this issue addressed. Nobody knew any, no, nobody asked me any significant questions about diet or anything. So I got out of the hospital, thank goodness. I'm on a beta blocker. I go see. To back to San Diego and see my cardiologist from San Diego. The first question she asked me, she says, so do you drink coffee? I said, no. Do you eat chocolate? I said, oh yeah. In fact, the night before this happened, I had a death by chocolate dessert. She says, okay, well, you got caffeine in your system. That plus stress could activate this atrial fib. Duh. So she get, gets me off the drug, gives me magnesium supplements. I stay away from caffeine. And I don't have another incident for a decade and a half, all of which could have been prevented if the doctor had been willing to listen and explore. You know, so that's sort of that's been my story of interaction with the medic. With there are clear exceptions. I mean, I have a great primary care physician now. I've had wonderful experiences with medical people, and more often than not. It requires in me preparation and bracing. Because I know that, I know this from my interactions with the corporate world, where I would not be taken seriously unless I was more intelligent than most people in the room and less assertive about demonstrating that intelligence than most people in the room. Because that's, that's that's what it's like. Yeah, that's I think one of the shocking, most shocking things um, that you ever told me. Shocking to me is you know having grown up and still remaining a white lady. Um, <laughs> still remaining. Till <laughs> <laughs> death do us part, baby. Yeah. It's a it's, it's a okay. terminal condition. I'm afraid yeah. so. Um, was that someone, and I think this was in Louisville, called you uppity in like oh my God. 2006. Well, yeah, this was, I, I, had, um, I had done a number of trainings for an organization, which I will not name, that offers leadership trainings to corporate folks. And I, I, I saw this guy a couple of years later, and he's from somewhere in Eastern Kentucky. But he said, yeah, I thought you were really uppity. You know? Yeah. And I was astonished, but I wasn't surprised hmm. because he simply voiced what other people think. Because mm -hmm. my entire life has been characterized by, you know, it's interesting. I've been this tall since I was 14. So I'm six foot nine, right? And I always wanted to be invisible. I always wanted, I always wanted to, you know, just like not be seen. But the body I inherited 
allowed me to be seen everywhere. And so, yeah, I've been a threat to people since I was, you know, a teenager. And that threat had nothing to do with who I was. It had to do with how I appeared and how that appearance and intelligence and creativity or whatever bounced up against their insecurities. So I've just, I've lived with that. Like I've lived with this nose, you know, for all these years, half a century. Plus. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder, I'm, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but I, I'm hoping that you'll understand what I'm getting at. If you could talk no, about- No, I, I I'm, so, I'm sure I'll misinterpret it. That's right. As, as yes. I usually do with everything yes. you say, right? Yeah, that's, that's what makes our relationship It's work. beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> of course you didn't say that. You said this. I made up what you said. <laughs> um, that's how it works. Um, it, it, if you could talk about, because you were talking about like having to, to brace in medical environments and having to always be like hyper over-prepared, not over-prepared, but with, oh, yeah could be ever prepared but also what i see as excellence as a form of code switching or as a form of uh protection maybe or being able to move about in spaces like you know showing up excellent um as as a way of well, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that that the thing that black folks said to their children for a long, long time, you have to be twice as good to get, you yep. know, to get half the credit. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. You know I mean, whether whether this is related to race or whether it's related to other issues or other situations in my life, I have internalized, for better or worse, a belief that if I'm going to show up in any area where it's highly likely that I'm gonna be on the receiving end of stereotyping, then I'm gonna do everything I can to demolish those stereotypes at the root. Now you're right, that, that, that involves, if, uh, you know, on, that contributes to hypervigilance, it contributes to bracing, it contributes to stress and all that. And it's part of the nature of, I think, surviving and thriving in an intensely dominator society. It stinks, you know, but it's also part of, I think the nature of that. And other people choose to survive. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm really fortunate because I have tools to, to heal a lot of the embodied trauma that comes from that. So I'm like doing emotional hygiene every day to clear it out so I don't carry it with me. Um, but that is the nature of life in the USA for lots of people, you know, who don't look like or act like whatever the dominator culture says they should. You know, I take it way beyond race. Race is one place, but it's, you know, Cal knows that, not peeing for 20 minutes or whatever and having to freaking hold it when you really need to go. Well, you get to a safe state. Yeah, you're driving down the highway <laughs> like, holy crap, I got 37 miles to go before an exit. Ah, That's right. You do know. I risk getting hit by a car and pee on the side of the road? Or do Seriously, I risk getting you, beat you, up you, going into the ladies room? <laughs> yeah, do you look, look, look for a forest to go to or whatever? I mean, unfortunately you can't like pull out the cup, you know? That's right. Yeah, it's always messy. Anatomically, you know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> no, it's problematic, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder, uh, you know, as you were talking, one of the things that occurred to me is Rebecca and I were talking about this yesterday in relation to other types of advocacy going on in the world. And the um, we read a book in the Hillwell community uh, a couple months ago called The Person You Mean to Be. And the author, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, structures it around these ideas of heat and light and that you sort of need both to create change. And um, I, I feel like... I tend to be, people often appreciate that I don't act like a jerk when they misgender me or, you know, oh. that I like address it, but I'm not like, like, I don't get like personally right. wounded in your face about it. And, right. you know, that is sort of my nature, which is also perhaps pathological and people pleasing. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm open to that feedback. Right. So, but there's our also, pathologies can be our strengths. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's all about your relationship with them. Um, I, there is a, a rage under that because what I'm doing is centering the comfort of cisgendered people, um, you know, by highlighting the neurological normalness of having a hard time moving beyond the binary. I am, I am making you feel better about never having thought about me and my existence. And That is how I feel like I can inspire the greatest, most sustainable change. And I just want to be like, it's not that damn hard people. Like, (laughs) and so what's the, what's the, the nervous system, the bodily toll of that, of like wanting to punch people sometimes, but choosing not to. (laughs) Well, I, I, I think there, that's the place where a person has to find within themselves the very deepest resources available to to process, to integrate, to manage, to choose. Because if I am simmering with rage all the time, it's going to mess up my blood pressure, my body. It's going to completely mess me up, right, long term. If I am going to express that rage overtly, it might come back to me a thousandfold. You know, that's what lynching's about. That's what these horrible murders of trans people are about. It's all all that crap, right? Yeah. So I think the question we have to face is, okay, what practices do I have, do I install, do I create that allow me to, without denial or deflection, process and metabolize all those emotions that come from living in a perverse, pathological, dominator, fuck part, messed oh, up society. Do it. Okay. Okay. I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to like, okay. But, but I mean, yes. it's, it's, like, it's like, how do I, how do I as an individual, regardless of my, my gender, my color, my size, my whatever, how do I find a way through the very natural responses of fight, flight, freeze, fawn, you know, and the rage, the fear, the numbness, the pleasing that naturally arise from that, how do I get beyond that to my own center of integrity and power? That's the question. And I think for that, that's where practices come in. That's where spiritual practice, that's where, where memory reconsolidation practice, that's where healing practices come in to process that and metabolize it so it doesn't get stuck in the system. You know. 
Absolutely. And that, that's, that's a lot of the work that I do with people, whether it's dealing with something that happened to them 30 years ago, something just happened yesterday. It's like, okay, how do we feel the emotions without the emotions like destroying the body? You know, because it, it makes perfect sense that you would be pissed off about going to the freaking bathroom. It makes right. per perfect sense that I would be pissed off about walking in a, in a grocery store and feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm a deer being hunted, right? Yeah. It makes perfect sense that somebody who has a differently sized or shaped body or different abilities or whatever would be pissed off about people looking either at them or through them every freaking day. That's normal. But the question is, okay, great. What do I do with that? Do I live the next 30 years of my life as a constant piss, piss machine? You know, do I live the next 30 years of my life completely broken in anger or frozen or then, or do I just become somebody who's always pretending with one of those fake smile, smiling faces? How do I find a place of authentic presence and healing in the face of, I think about Viktor Frankl a lot, you know, kind, because definitely during COVID, I practice what I call my concentration camp strategy, which is also like my Nelson Mandela prison strategy, which is also my Christopher Reeve, you know, broken body strategy. It's like, okay, it's also my prisoner of war strategy, right? In yeah. all those cases, you have people, and there's not, there's not a lot of them, but you have, you have people who are thrivers, people who have been through like the worst crap that human beings can go through, and they didn't get broken by it. Right. And one of, the things they, one of the things they all do is they recognize that, A, the environmental situation is messed up. And B, I have a choice how I respond to it. It's not, it's not saying, okay, everything's perfect and everything happens for a reason. And it's, not, it's none of that new age bullshit, right? But it's like, like Viktor Frankl in a freaking concentration camp found that some people allowed it to break them and other people were comforting others and they yeah. were sharing their fish head soup with another person. And they were, you know, they, they were an instrument of light and hope even in the, in the certainty of dying in a gas chamber. Yeah. You know, I mean, th th I, those are the people that I gain um, strength and courage and insights from. Well, and this is the question that, so there are two things. One, I mean, and this could just be confirmation bias, but as you were talking, I was yeah. thinking, uh, feeling even more comfortable in, in what we pitch at Heal Well in terms of the value of massage therapy and that, mm -hmm. Every person is walking around in some level of trauma because Absolutely. of everything you just described. Yeah. And so yeah. you don't have to release tendon attachments and like, you can just be kind to this person and that is healing. And I mean, I want to pull out the word just, because if you can be focused and kind to this person for an hour, that is therapeutic and that will oh improve God, yes. their experience. But I think the, the point about, cause I was actually going to ask you, I remember years ago, I read this book um, that was, I think it was edited by Daniel Goleman, um, the emotional intelligence guy yeah, and yeah. Um, written with the Dalai Lama called difficult emotions. Ah, okay. And there are all kinds of studies about sort of emotional regulation essentially yeah. and and i remember this one study they did where they had um monks uh practicing buddhist monks hooked up to biofeedback and they had sort of actors yelling at them and like becoming increasingly angry and the angrier the partner in the dyad became the calmer and more compassionate the monk became and yeah. i'm a very optimistic person and i feel like most people 
are so far from a place where they could be attacked and feel compassion for the attacker. And, but that, that's where I want us to go. And that's where I feel like we could go. Um, there's a lot we can do in between, but when, when we can stop accusing the attackers and meet that anger with compassion, and when we can understand that we have that in ourselves. I flipped someone off in my car yesterday. I don't think I've ever, ever, ever done that. I was like, what, who is this person? What just happened? <laughs> and, and, and I was like, and my son was in the car with me and they were like, dad. And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. And we all have that. And, you know, so I feel like we're just so quick to, to yeah. again, to other, even in that case that like, I could never be this person who does this atrocious act or who, and oh, like, oh, yeah. what, what happens? Of right. Of course we are. But yeah. I don't think most people, I mean, this is the, one of the big struggles around the carceral system is that people think, well, you're in there because you're a bad person. And it's like, no, you're in there because of circumstances and a shitty oppressive system. And because of yeah. things that have nothing to do with you as a person. Yeah. Um, but we want so much to feel safe that we put up these stories about who gets to be what. And I think it's part of like with the code switching, when you're talking about the physicians and I don't know if we call it code switching or if it's bias or if bias and code switching hang out together, but like when you come into the physician's office, the physician talks to you differently than he talks to the white patient who was in there just before you. And so is that code switching or is that discrimination? And like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you you just you just threw out so much just then. I mean, it's like <laughs> well, the first thing I thought about was one time I was talking, I was driving down Bardstown Road talking to a friend. We we're talking about equanimity or something like that, and somebody cut me off, and I yelled, "You!" <laughs> and then you know we laughed about, it, and then I get we get back to the conversation about equanimity, right? You know, um, I think well. What you said just now about your optimism brings me to what for me is like the fundamental premise uh, that, I, that, that I attempt to live by. And it's, it's this idea that we human beings are, we're born for love. No baby comes out of a womb wanting to kill or harm other people with very few exceptions, neurological dis disorders and everything. But we're born for love, for connection, for compassion, but we get wired for fear. We get programmed, so we struggle, right? Yeah. But the good news, I remember there's, there's a wonderful book by, um, it's called Altruism. It's by Mateau, who was the, the, the monk neuroscientist who was- Matthew Ricard. Thank you, Mateau. Oh, uh -huh. Yes, Ricard. And he talks about studies where, with the monks, when they witness suffering, he had them, the, the, these studies, the monks were instructed, okay, feel empathy. And when they witnessed, when they felt the suffering, you saw the same parts of their brain fire as the person who was angry or sad or, or afraid or whatever. Then he said, okay, now shift and feel compassion. And it was interesting because neurologically, the parts of the brain that resonated with the emotions were surrounded by this wider field, you know? And so I think the promise of those studies gives, is, is that we can, through effort and practice and community and knowledge and feedback, we can retrain our brains to reclaim our true nature beyond the fear. 
it's not easy. It's work. I mean, just like you don't become a virtuoso musician, you don't become a, a champion, a, a black belt martial artist overnight. But we have the same capacity to change our neurology in ways that allow us to face the world without getting caught up in the world in the same way. You know, I think that's what the Dalai Lama is talking about and what Goldman and all those folks are basically saying. Yeah. But it's not easy. No. It doesn't happen overnight. Well, and it is like, I mean, I think the musical comparison is great because no, you're not ready for Carnegie Hall, but after you've been playing the clarinet for like a month, you can play Mary Had a Little Lamb and that feels pretty damn good, right? Yeah. Like as you start to practice the relief, it doesn't take long to feel that. Yeah, that, 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 that's a topic for another podcast. Okay? <laughs> because, um, you build your brain the way you build your biceps, one rep at a time, one thought at a time, one perspective yep. at a time, you know? And so I also am optimistic. I'm optimistic for individual humans to make a difference. I'm not necessarily optimistic about the collective because of the, um, the propulsion that happens collectively, yes. you know? Well, um, Corey, I know you have thoughts and I would love to hear your thoughts. If you have any shareable thoughts <laughs> at the moment. You guys cut out for a second there, sorry. It's okay. Corey's like thoughts, I don't have any thoughts. What are you talking um, about? I'm, <laughs> I'm just like Zen, I'm in, I'm in the thoughtless realm of- That's right. I have, I have so many thoughts, oh God, okay. <laughs> Honestly, yes. my main thought is about lead poisoning. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Say, say more. Yeah. yeah. So um, there was a report that came out a while ago, and it's not the first one, but like it was the big one, that it's like 60% of people were exposed to harmful amounts of lead when they were children because we just didn't know any better. And that's kind of what happened. Um, and lead poisoning causes just atrocious neurological damage um and it causes damage in like the way people make decisions and the way they are able to think about things um so so there's that thought and then there was this thought about like when you are a person trying to make change how you balance what you know is true and what you wish is true mm -hmm. and how you try to make those things the same thing even though that's not technically possible but like that's always the goal right so with the idea of the lead poisoning and other neurodiversity occurrences with people, part of me thinks it's just not possible for some people to have better thought processes. Like it's not possible for them to learn. It's not possible for them for their aggression to be lessened necessarily like that it is because of poisoning or something else but because of neurological changes they are hardwired to exist in this way and I don't know how many people that is and I don't know how true that is I don't think anybody really knows but as a people who want to make change how do you reconcile what may never be and where you put your efforts if something may never be is what you do so worth what you're doing and now you have as many thoughts as I do. Have fun. He's <laughs> gonna throw that back at you. <laughs> I'm I'm reminded of of one of my favorite passages from a Pema Chodron book, where she says 
that possibly the most useful affirmation we could use is abandon hope. And that the things we do, most of us come to our advocacy from a contractual position that I'm going to X so that Y will happen. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is the same when we're talking with people like in our year to live class, you know, I'm like, you still, you may be super prepared to die. And what happens is you're on a trip overseas Nobody, your POA, all your documents are nowhere. You're in a country where people don't speak your language and you die in a place where people don't know how to understand your wishes. And did that make all that preparation useless? No, you got to know yourself better and you thought about the value of your life and what you thought death might be like. And that journey was worthwhile. So I feel kind of, I feel the same way about the things that we do. Like, I don't want to live in this body. Um, in a sense of futility. And I don't want to live in this body knowing that I didn't use it to the greatest possible achievement of light. Whether that manifests in any way that would even move a needle you could perceive feels less important. I feel like the older I get that it's, it's important to me to use my love and energy in that way, knowing that I am healing and benefiting and that in itself is beneficial. I agree. I agree with that. Um, I go back to a letter that Thomas Merton wrote to a young activist that you might be familiar with. And he basically tells this, this, because this person, this was, you know, I think during the Vietnam War or whatever, and the activist was asking for hope. And Merton said, one of the most important things you must do is give up hope for results. In Merton's cosmology, put the hope in the hands of the higher power, or whatever, but your job is to do what's in front of you. I also remember having a conversation with Peter Block. I don't know if you know Peter Block. He's a, uh, he was a corporate consultant, but he's, he's shifted his work in the last 20 years to working on empowering communities and neighborhoods. And we were both backstage at this conference. And this was during the Iraq war and right before Bush got reelected. So I said, what gives you hope, dude? And he said, I believe hope is a choice. So it's not this ephemeral thing. It's a choice I choose in this moment to act in a way that is hopeful, empowering, whatever. But it's not the idea of hope for a better future. It's about the idea of hope in that. For me, hope is connected to agency. And just like Viktor Frankl said, we can take everything away from somebody except their capacity to choose how they respond. I think for me, it's the same thing. Like what? Have I been able to do something? Have I been kind? Have I brought the best of me to this moment, this person, this instant, this bonkers, you know, in this moment? And that's all I can do. Yeah, this is, makes me think of two things, like the, something, Callie, you said on last week's episode of the podcast about planting seeds for trees will never sit, sit under. And like owning the value of that. And, and I keep going back to this because this is my official cultural touchstone. Um, the end of the movie, Don't Look Up, where she oh, says, yeah. I'm grateful that we tried. And that yeah. has to be enough. Yeah. yeah, that movie is so powerful because it's it, it's more than a metaphor. It's a documentary, really, in many yeah. ways. And <laughs> yeah. that last scene when they're in the room together and the asteroid's on the way and the earth is shaking and they're together praying, holding. Yeah, that's a beautiful metaphor for, I think, for every moment of every day. 
When I think about in Frank Ostaszewski's book, The Five Invitations, he has a segment about hope and that hope as it's traditionally practiced is sort of a perpetual breath holding. And he talks about that the alternative is what he calls mature hope, which is that rather than being attached to outcome, you're open to outcome. And that hope is not about perpetual dissatisfaction with what's here. It's about knowing that, like you said, it's agency. It's doing what you can do now. And yeah, that, you know, when it comes to code switching, racism, genderism, all of the things that we're doing to oppress each other, mm. that it is knowing that it is worth it to me to do what I can in this space and to hopefully bring some people along with me. I mean, it's way more fun to even just have the four people on this call <laughs> to do it with. Yeah. Um, but to know that mm. there are always going to be lots of people who think this is a terrible idea and whose own addiction to their comfort will keep them in a place of being like, yeah, you just keep all your uppityness over there. <laughs> yeah. And I think what we, what we can gain from the people who have like lived and thrived, whether it's, uh, you know, um, whoever Jesus was, not the church people, not the church part, you know, or Buddha or Nelson Mandela or um, Helen Keller, you know, or Sojourner Truth or so many people. Yeah that come back to this principle of empowered love come back to that no matter what Dietrich Bonhoeffer you know oh yeah come back to empowered love is the answer to all the shit yep. you know and the worse it gets the more important it is to live from that place of empowered love yeah. so did we fix it is that what <laughs> it's all better Boom. We sent a vibration into the that is correct. waves of the universe that will go places we never know what impact it will have. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what else is out there? Final thoughts, questions, stories you want to tell? I just want to do this again. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, I, you know, like, this is probably for another. Oh, go ahead, Harry. No, I mean, it's just like this is a this is such a delicious taste into because I'll hear Rebecca, right? Even either at a meeting or in a podcast or whatever. And like every seven to 12 minutes, there's like this eruption of laughter. <laughs> I'm like, what is she on? You know, now I get a sense of it. It's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and I, I, I feel like one of the, and I don't remember it exactly, but one of the things from Thomas Merton's letter is he says something like, I'm tired of um, ideological conversations or I'm exhausted Absolutely. by them or something. And I feel like, I mean, we could uh, clearly, we could talk ideology forever. And you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, you were like, yeah, part of the solution is having these not so cerebral conversations that like make us tear up a little bit and make us sort of shake like an asteroid is coming for us, right? And that we are willing to say like, this is real yeah. and let's go to that place more often. Yeah, I think the American, the human propensity for transcendence is only exceeded by the human propensity for total self-delusion. <laughs> so true. It's the worst cage match ever. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Well. Wow, that seems like a, a thought to uh, 
Yeah. And Don. Just play. <laughs> so, well, we're going to place the mic gently on the ground and back away. Yeah. <laughs> we won't stop it with this. That's right. <laughs> and we'll 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 threaten to have Mr. Pickens back with us because absolutely. Be, yeah. Be, yeah. We should, uh, I should join you for a pun fest. That would be the thing. Yes. That would be the best. All yeah. right. That sounds that sounds like some Patreon content. Yes. Coming your way. Yes. Okay. Okay. We're awesome. Make that happen. Okay. Um, and speaking of the Patreon, if you would like to join the Patreon and see some of this behind the scenes stuff and get your episodes early, it's patreon.com slash interdisciplinary. Um Thank you, everyone who is is traveling along with us for this season through this podcast. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We uh, we know you're out there, and we are very grateful for you. And we would love to hear from you and be even more grateful. Um, so you can email us at podcast at healwell.org. Um, you can continue this conversation with us in real time. Our actual selves are in the Healwell community at community.healwell.org. Definitely, um, we hope you will show up next week because we will, with um, with all of the things, and ready to have the conversations that make us tear up a little. That's right. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Harry, for being here today. Thanks, You're Harry. welcome. You're welcome. Thank you all. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.